what uh, Tommy Powell's wife's name is? Luann. Luann? Yes. All right, so the past several weeks, we've been studying different uh, characters from the Bible. And then the past two weeks, uh, Daryl has been talking about there's one story in the Bible overall, and it's all about Christ. And just tracing that one story uh, from Genesis all the way through the Bible. Uh, and we spent about a week, sometimes two weeks, on the other characters in the Bible, and it's kind of appropriate that we spend more time on Jesus as a character in the Bible. And I think uh, there's uh, two different main errors that we can fall into when we go to thinking about Jesus. One is we think of him as the Son of God, right? And so he is God-man, and you know, he's all-powerful, he's above temptation, uh, he can walk on water, raise the dead, and he's somehow not really human. He's superhuman. And so we can't really relate to him like we would to another person. Because he is God. And we see that. And the other error people can fall in is to only relate to him as the son of man. And you see him as just a human being. And, you know, he got hungry, he got thirsty. And you tend to kind of have this uh, lack of reverence that can creep into some people's thinking about God. He becomes their bro, right? Don't take him very seriously uh, because he's just a man, just like us. And that's an error, right? We don't want to think of him that way. And in fact, uh, Jesus is uh, something that's completely different from anything else that's ever existed because he is fully God and fully man. Uh, that is is important. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 21 says, who is the redeemer of God's elect? The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. So the other thing we can tend to do is to think of Jesus as a man who lived 2,000 years ago born in Bethlehem, lived in Judea, and died on a cross outside of Jerusalem. And then he died. And we know he rose again, but he went to heaven. And so now he's back to just being God again, right? But that's not the way he is. He took on a human nature. And as a result, when he's resurrected, he has a body, right? He tells Thomas, you know, put your hand in my side. Put your fingers in these holes in my hands. And he remains a man. And so if you, if you start to think about this, and this is the subject of a lot of the heresies that were present in the early days of the church, and uh, it's the source of a lot of the problems that many churches have now. It's just this thinking about who is Christ? How is it that he is both God and man? And I had you all look at these pictures of things that look how things look under a microscope. Um, and one of the things I've noticed is that as beautiful as things are, butterfly wings and snowflakes, that when you zoom in even closer and you look at them under the microscope, they are still beautiful, sometimes even more beautiful. You would not normally think of a virus as beautiful, but as I think it was you, Nita, said, it 
looks like a flower. It's, it's a gorgeous creation, even though it's mostly a deadly creation, but it's beautiful under a microscope. And in the same way, I think, as we look at Jesus, and as you read through the Gospels, and you just kind of go through, I mean, you can get from Matthew to John in your yearly Bible plan in about a month, right? It doesn't take that long. Well, as you zoom in and really look at Jesus under a microscope, he becomes even more amazing. I mean, there's just no dimension at which you can examine the life of Christ and not just be amazed at who he is. And so I want to zoom in our microscope tonight on just one aspect of who Jesus is. And this aspect is Jesus has emotions. As a man, he has emotions just like we have emotions. They are often different than our emotions and expressed in different ways. But he has emotions. Happy, sad, angry, peaceful, calm, all these different things that you and I feel on a daily basis, Jesus felt. And that is something that God does not do. God is not moved with emotions like we are, right? When I see something happen, you know, the guy cuts me off in traffic, and all of a sudden, my self-will boils up, right? And I respond. Whether I'm shaking my fist at that guy, hopefully it's a closed fist, right? Sanctified anger at that man, right? Or I'm just internally thinking, boy, man, I hope the cop gets you down the road, you know? I'm praying, I'm not going to get you, right? God doesn't ever experience that. God never reacts to things that happen because God is changeless. He does not change. He cannot change. So he cannot react to things that happen outside of himself. He wasn't angry a second ago. You did something and now he is angry. That's not possible for God. He is changeless. But when God takes on human flesh, it's one of the reasons he takes on human flesh. Because God is changeless. He had to become a man in order to suffer. That's what it says in Hebrews 2, 14 through 8. He had to take on a human body in order that he could suffer. And suffering is change. He was not suffering before, and now, according to his flesh, he is suffering. And in his emotional life, Christ will experience change in a way that God, as God, would never experience. God has emotions, but they flow out. Part of what we'll see tonight is how emotions work is they flow out of who you are. But Christ will also experience emotions based on things that happen to him. And it will cause his emotional state to change. And I want us to look at that because it's an astounding thing that Christ himself should have emotions. And that we feel emotions. We can relate to him in this way. So let's first off, let's go to Hebrews 4, 15. Somebody will read that one for me while I get more water. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay, so we have this difficult double negative construction. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize, right? Now, it takes a little bit of brain. You can turn that around. So I'm just going to change it around for us. 
we have a high priest who can sympathize. Right? I don't typically go into the Greek very much, okay? But tonight we're going to get more than my usual. But this word, sympathize, it's almost just letter for letter what it is in the Greek. It is sympathize, okay? So it's just nearly what we have here, sympathize, all right? I'll use a different color here. So it's two different words put together. So you got sim, which means with. I'm going to tell you more about that. And then this is from pathos, right? Sound familiar? Pathos. You generally think it's feelings, it's emotion, but it's not just a casual feeling, it's pathos. This is what you feel when you watch a tragedy, when you read uh, Shakespeare's The Ending of Hamlet where everyone's dying, or Romeo and Juliet where they're all dead in the end, and you have pathos. This is deep feeling here, all right? And this sim, this with, so it's with feelings, right? But this with, it means with, but it can also, and more generally would be expected to mean that he is participating with. He's taking part with us. So it's not just, you know, he has feelings alongside of us, but he is participating in the feelings that we have. Okay, so step back for just a moment. This is the God who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And yet, because he has taken on flesh, he is now partaking with us of the feelings that we have. The feelings that's being referenced here in Hebrews is, you know, temptation. Jesus has suffered temptation. And as someone put it, and I can't remember who it was now, said, you haven't, it was J.I. Packer, said, you haven't really experienced temptation until you've tried to be a good man. Right? It's easy for about a second to resist temptation. The longer you resist, right, the harder it pushes back at you. And Jesus never gave in. And so Jesus knows what it's like to suffer temptation more than we ever will because we give in usually too quickly, right? But because he never gave in, he suffered the full measure of temptation. From birth to death, he never gives in. Jesus can sympathize with how we feel. He is not a high priest who cannot sympathize. He feels it all. He is participating with us in these feelings. So we're going to look at several different emotions that Jesus exhibited. What do you think might be the most common emotion mentioned for Jesus? Yeah. I think of anger when he was driving the corner people out. Anger. That, there is a lot of anger, actually. It's not the highest on the list. We are going to get to that one. Yeah? Sad? Sad? What's he sad about, do you think? Uh, Lazarus in the tomb. Okay. Jesus wept. Yeah, we'll get to that one. That'll be interesting. If you've ever wondered about that Jesus wept, I think I'm going to... Uh, said that our sins, yeah. our sins against us. Yeah. I'm going to say love. Love and compassion. Yes, you are second on the list. Ooh. Compassion is number one. Compassion. As a matter of fact, 
Jesus showed so much compassion and in such a different way, the writers had to make up a word for it. There is no Greek word used anywhere outside of the New Testament until well down the line after the New Testament was written for the compassion that Jesus showed. It is the Hebrew writers of the New Testament who took a Hebrew idea and transformed it into a Greek word. Okay? And it sounds gross, all right? But keep in mind, we are not Hebrews. We don't come from their culture. It means his bowels were moved. Okay? So do not go up to your sweetheart next tonight and be like, oh, my bowels are moved for you. That will not impress anyone, right? But in Hebrew, the bowels were thought of as the seat of your emotions. And so if your bowels were moved, that means you felt something deeply. You felt a great deal of compassion for someone. And the word contains within it. It is not just you felt it inside, but the bowels are moved. So it contains within this word not only the idea of a feeling, but of an action that will fulfill this feeling. And so when Jesus felt compassion, he didn't just sit at home like if you see one of those, you know, feed the hungry children commercials on TV, and you sit there and you feel compassion, right? But that's not the same thing as what it's talking about when Jesus was moved with compassion. It's talking about when he picked up the phone, you know, and starts saying, yes, I'm going to give so much to help these children. That is what it's talking about when it says Jesus was moved with compassion because it contains with it this idea of you must act to fulfill this feeling. So let's look at some examples of this compassion that Jesus felt. Let's go to Mark 1, 40 and 41, and then someone else look up Matthew 20, verses 30 to 34. Again. Mark 1, 40 to 41, and Matthew 20, 30 to 34. As soon as you have them, go ahead. So which one do you want read first? Mark. 40 to 41? Yep. And the leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. So here, this verse has it moved with pity. Um, in fact, the translations always uh, have a lot of trouble figuring out how do we translate this on all of these emotional words. How do you translate an emotion from one language to another? It's very difficult. Um, so hers has it here, moved with pity. Some others say moved with compassion, moved with feeling. This is a leper. This is the most outcast person in all of society to these people. And this leper comes to him and says, you can heal me. And Jesus is moved with compassion and touches the leper. Makes him clean. That, that involves a, a, not just a feeling inside, but a feeling that demands a relief must help this person. I can help this person. I'm going to touch them and make them clean. Uh, go ahead, Matthew 20, verses 30 to 34. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. 
The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So why does he heal them? He's moved with compassion. Let's look at one more. Luke 7, 12 through 15. I'm sorry, would you get this? Luke 7, verses 12 through 15. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the boy, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus has compassion on the man's mother. Her son has died. She's weeping to follow the body to where it's going to be buried. Jesus sees this, and he's moved with compassion, and he raises the man from the dead. How many blind men are in Israel? How many people died on this day, just this day? Never mind in Jesus' entire life. How many lepers were there? And every day, Jesus walked through this world of misery. And he is feeling this compassion. The, the last enemy, it says, that will be destroyed is death. Death is the great enemy that Jesus has come to destroy. And every day, he sees the evidence of the curse on this world. Those people are sick blind and leprous and dead. And there are people crying for their dead loved ones. And Jesus has to pass by. He can't heal them all. Because it's not the time of the restoration. Right? This is not when he's supposed to come in his kingdom. He can't fix it all. And so every day, Jesus witnesses the misery of human suffering. And he feels his compassion and can't heal everyone. That hurts. That hurts. If you've ever gone to another country and you see the misery that most people in the world live in, and you just want to fix it. And there's just so many, you think, if they just had some clean water sometimes, right? That would just make so much of their lives better. They wouldn't be dying from these diseases. And some of the times it's just, if they just had a shot of vitamin C, they wouldn't go blind. I mean, it's just amazing how simple it can be to relieve human suffering in this world. And if you go to one of these places and you see all around you the misery, and you think, I can't fix it all. And we can't fix it because we're powerless to fix everybody. And Jesus can't fix it because it's not the right time. Imagine that kind of suffering, that he's moved with this kind of compassion, that he would see a woman crying at her son's funeral and be like, I have to do something today. But every day he's feeling this. And this isn't the only thing his compassion moves him to do. In Mark 6.34, he teaches the crowds because he has compassion on them. 
It causes him to teach. In Mark 8, 2, he's showing hospitality to people because he has compassion on the crowds. Jesus' compassion compels him to take action on people's behalf, to relieve the misery that he sees around him, both their, their physical misery by healing them when he can and their spiritual misery by teaching them by showing them that in front of them stands the one that they need that would truly, ultimately fix all of their misery. That is how Christ has moved with compassion. Jesus also wept. He was sad. Right? We're not going to John 11. Alright? Not yet. We're going to Luke 19. Verse... Jesus near the end of his life and he comes up over the city of Jerusalem probably a small hill overlooking the city where he can see the whole city and he weeps over the city and this word weeps is clio alright and this is one of those words it's an onomatopoeia right it sounds like the thing it is okay this is clio this is not just gentle tears running down your face. This is what we would call ugly crying. All right? This is raising a clamor. It sounds like this. Clio! Right? This is what Jesus is doing. All right? So imagine this, and, and I'm going to take some of the, the account from Matthew as well, where Jesus is looking out over the city. Near the end of his life, they've rejected him. He knows what's coming. They're going to be crying out, crucify him. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Now, you just heard me read that, and I put some emotion to it. He is Clio, okay? This is the way that David cries when Absalom has died. And he's saying, Absalom, Absalom, my son. This is how he is crying. This is how Peter cries when he realizes what he's done, that he's denied his Lord three times, and he goes out, and he, Clio. This is how, oh, who was the other one that I had? Oh, oh, in Bethlehem, when Herod gives the order to kill all the children to and under, this is how the region of Bethlehem weeps. It says, Rachel weeps for her children. Rachel, Clio, this is how you cry when the soldiers have come and they have killed your two-year-old and you're holding your dead baby in your arms. This is how you cry. And this is how Jesus cries as he looks out over Jerusalem who is rejected. Think about, have you ever, I have never, wept over the lost in this way. Can you imagine the heart of our Savior 
weeping over the lost. Crying, ugly crying. Snot running down his face crying. Saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I long to gather your children together, and you would not. This is how Jesus cryo weeps, cries over the lost. He is sad because they are rejecting him. They are rejecting their only hope of salvation, their only hope of life. And as he looks out over the city and realizes they've rejected him, he is crying out, sobbing in tears because they are lost. Jesus was also angry. I want to, I got a lot of this at the read for my class. This comes from a B.B. Warfield long essay. It's not the easiest read, um, but he's an amazing theologian. And so I'm going to read you this section because I think we also have this tendency to think we shouldn't be angry. Right? And I think it's especially true in Western culture. Right? Here in America, we're all very politically correct, right? And anger is always negative, right? But I think B.B. Warfield helps us understand that anger is not always negative. He says, the moral sense is not a mere faculty of discrimination between the qualities which we call right and wrong. The moral sense. Okay, so this is this feeling you have inside when you see something that's right or wrong and nobody has to teach you, right? That's wrong. You shouldn't do that. Right? This is this moral sense that you have that knows right from wrong. The judgments it passes are not merely intellectual, but what we call moral judgments. That is to say, they involve approval and disapproval according to the qualities perceived. It would be impossible, therefore, for a moral being to stand in the presence of a perceived wrong, indifferent and unmoved. Precisely what we mean by a moral being is a being perceptive of the difference between right and wrong and reacting appropriately to the right and wrong perceived as such. The emotions of indignation and anger belong, therefore, to the very self-expression of a moral being as such, cannot be lacking to him in the presence of wrong. Okay, so that's deep, and that's one of those really long, paragraph-long sentences. Okay? And what it means is that when you see evil happening in front of you, as a moral being, you cannot be indifferent to this. You see it, and you say, that is evil. And you have that sense inside of you that is not indifferent. It's moved, and it's angry. Now, this is the sort of response that comes from your own nature, right? If I am a good person, then I am going to have a greater sense of outrage towards evil. If I am a bad person, I'm going to have a diminished reaction towards seeing good things happen, right? Like, you see this... this it's a kind of a trope on old movies and TV shows back when they used to have a difference between good people and bad guys, right? The bad guy would see the good guy helping someone and be like, ah, oh, what a chump, you know? 
that kind of diminished feeling. He recognizes, yeah, he's doing something good, but you know, it's kind of foolish for him to do that. Well, he's diminished his moral capacity to understand that this is good, right? So when God shows emotions, when God as God shows emotions, right, this is appropriate. It doesn't come because he is changing or reacting to things that happen in front of him, but out of his own nature, out of his own sense of this is right and this is wrong, he responds appropriately to the creature. When the creature does good, God is pleased. And when man does evil, God is displeased and angry. And you see that kind of language all through the Bible. And so Jesus, as a human, as a perfect human, right? Without sin, there is no cloudiness to his moral judgment. We always have clouded judgment, right? I don't want to judge you too harsh because I know I'm guilty of the same remorse, right? And that makes me think, well, yeah. I mean, they stole $25, but at least they didn't steal $100, right? I want to kind of let you off the hook a little bit, right? Inside, anyway. Now, outside, I'm like, yeah, judge them. Get them, right? But our judgments are always clouded by hypocrisy, by the own evil within ourselves. We know that we are evil. And when we see good, those moral judgments are also as well, right? We think, wow, was it really that good? He's probably just doing it so I would notice, right? He's got bad motives, definitely. You know, he could have done more. Uh, look at what I've done. I mean, nobody noticed when I did this thing last week, right? Our moral judgments are clouded. Jesus doesn't have that problem. When Jesus sees good and evil, he is able to perfectly respond to what is evil as evil. His moral judgments are exactly right every time. So when he is angry about something, it is because it is worth being angry about. And when he points out, look, here is something good. Someone has done something good here. It is because something good has really happened there. All right, so I want to look at one example here before we get to John 11. You know, Mark 3 Verses 4 and 5. This is just one of the classic examples of where Jesus is really very angry today. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. He looked around at them with anger. So this word is the same word as wrath. Okay? When Jesus is going, or when God is going to pour his wrath out on Judgment Day, it's that same word. Jesus looks around at them at, with wrath. And like compassion, this is not a word where it's just an inward feeling. This is a word that implies the action that will fulfill this feeling. Jesus is in effect condemning these people right here, right now, in wrath. 
because their hardness of heart, their utter lack of sympathy and feeling for this man who is sick, he is very, very angry. I mean, it would be hard to overstate just how furious Jesus has become at this point. When you're talking, I mean, think about the sort of wrath that God is ready to pour out on the world in judgment. And we always look at that and say, if you want to see what God thinks about sin, look at what he did to his own son on the cross. That is the wrath of God poured out in full measure on the son of God on our behalf. And it is that kind of fury that Jesus looks about at these people with. He is incredibly angry. You can imagine, have you ever been really, really angry? What happens to you? Your heart is pounding. You're shaking with anger, right? I mean, this is as angry as a person can be. As Jesus looks on them with wrath and heals this man. That's very angry. Okay. John 11. Let's just go straight to 11.35. And start there. We're going to build up to how Jesus is feeling at the death of Lazarus. And this is under which category? This is anger. Okay. This is still anger here. 1135, you probably know it by heart as soon as you see it, <laughs> Jesus wept. So what is going on here when Jesus weeps? This is not quiet. This is not Jesus' ugly crying. These are the sort of tears that pour down your face silently without any sound. It's the sort of tears that erupt on your face when there is so much emotion bottled up in you that it has to come out somehow. And you just have tears running down your face. Okay? Now, I don't want to get in trouble here. Okay? But this is more likely to be seen among a certain proportion of our population. Right? <laughs> when guys okay. get angry, they tend to just punch something. Right? It's going to come out. Right? We don't tend to really bottle up anger. You know, guys get this, we, we have this stereotype that, you know, women are emotional and guys are stoic. And that's nonsense. Guys feel lots of anger, lots of other emotions, just not the whole, oh, look at somebody kind of emotions. Right? Okay? So when a guy gets angry, typically somebody gets hurt. Something gets damaged very soon after. All right? Women tend to just get quiet, and you see the tears, all right? Because there's just so much emotion, it's gotta come out somehow, all right? This is Jesus wept. There is so much emotion in him at this moment that it's got to come out somehow, all right? So what has him so worked up that he's crying? Is it, he's sad over the death of his friend? I think that's part of it. But there's a whole lot more going on here. Let's go back up to John eleven thirty three here. Okay, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. 
All right, so deeply moved in his spirit. I don't know. I want to give the translators the benefit of the doubt. Emotion is very difficult to translate, and it's kind of confusing, I think, partly because we're just not used to thinking about Jesus like this. But this is to groan or to snort with anger. All right? This is when the Pharisees see the woman wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and washing his feet with their tears, and they're all murmuring and upset with him. This is what they're feeling. Okay? It's the same thing. All right? So Jesus sees the women weeping, sees the people around him weeping, and he is, where is it? Deeply moved. Deeply moved in his spirit. This is what he feels. He is snorting with anger. What are you so mad about, Jesus? And then he is also greatly troubled. All right? So this is not just, just a throwaway word. This is, he is troubled. He is not peaceful in his spirit. There is no calm inside of him. This is unquiet, unpeaceful, troubled. Okay? So he is snorting with anger and deeply troubled inside. And, and this is leading up to he's going to start... Tears are just going to start leaking out of his face. He is so angry. Um, what's the next one here? That may have been the next one. There it is, verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. So, deeply moved again. He's snorting in anger again. Now, that is the facts. Okay? Jesus is very angry when he shows up here. Sees women crying, sees everyone crying, and he's snorting with anger. He's deeply troubled inside to the point there's so much emotion going on in him that tears start running down his face. And they're not tears of sadness. They are tears that spring out of all this anger and emotion going on inside of him. Okay? Those are the facts. Here on, I'm interpreting. Okay? So, Jesus is angry. This is a fact. Why is he angry? I'm going to speculate. And it has to do with what I said before. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. I think death is Jesus' single greatest enemy that he wants to eradicate. He has come that we might have life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the word that created all things. And all things have life in him. He is life. And death is only a result of the fall. In fact, most of the scholars trace all of the food laws and all those weird laws about you know, who's going to be unclean and when they're unclean in the Old Testament to these things uh, have to do with death in one way or the other. You know, like catfish. You can't eat catfish. Why do the bottom feeders eat the dead stuff off the bottom of the river? And, and most of the scholars, you know, that's what they taught me, is um, they, they believe that all of those laws have to do with they demonstrate death somehow. 
And this is why when Nadab and Abihu offer strange fire in the tabernacle just as it's open, they fall down dead in the tabernacle. And this is why God starts giving them the laws about how to cleanse the tabernacle leading up to the Day of Atonement when they will cleanse the tabernacle for the year for all the sins of the people against the tabernacle. And it's when these two dead bodies drop dead in the middle of the tabernacle that has just been consecrated to God. It is death in the tabernacle. We have to have a way to cleanse it. Death is the ultimate enemy of God. He has come to destroy death. And in his death, he will put to death death itself. And I think this is what has Jesus so angry. Here is a man that Jesus loved. That's how they sent the message to Jesus. He whom you love is sick. Come save him. And now death has taken his friend. And he sees all the people weeping. And it's just one more evidence that death has seemingly won a victory here today. And he is angry. And I don't think he's angry that they're weeping. Their weeping is totally appropriate. Right? Their loved one has died. And this is even what moved him with such compassion for the woman whose son was dead. Was her weeping. He sees this and he's moved with compassion. And he raises her son from the dead. He's not angry that they're crying. He's angry that death has reigned over his friend here today. But today, that doesn't stand. Today, Jesus will stand at the tomb of Lazarus and say, Come forth out of anger. So you can hear all that anger building up in him to the point that he stands at the tomb and it says he's going to cry out, right? He is not there just merely bringing back a friend. He is there showing, I am the Lord of life and death and I will defeat death today. And so I think he yells out in anger, Lazarus, come forth. Because he's not letting death win today. That part, speculation. That's what I think. All right? fact is Jesus is very angry here and in the end his anger motivates him to bring Lazarus back from the dead in accordance with the will of his father all part of God's plan today death will not win and the final thing Jesus feels is joy we're familiar right with the verse from Isaiah he is a man of sorrows right we even have that hymn that we sing man of sorrows what a name for the Son of God who came. But he's also a man of joy. Um, I didn't write it down. That's bad. Somewhere in Psalms, like the, the author of Hebrews says, it says in a certain place, well, I'm going to do that kind of reference. It says in a certain psalm that he is anointed with joy above all his fellows. He is anointed with the oil of gladness above all his fellows. And this is also talking about Jesus. Yes, he's the man of sorrows, but he is also anointed with the oil of gladness. Um, let's see, Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. <laughs> I know what this is. I was looking for the Psalms reference. But it's actually because um, the, the one from Isaiah saying that he's a man of sorrows is never repeated in the New Testament, but the one from Psalms actually is. Did you say 
Hebrews 1, verses 8 and 9. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your righteousness, the scepter of uprightness, is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. He is not merely the man of sorrows. He is anointed with the oil of gladness. Luke 10.21, you probably already know, there's no place in the Gospels where it says Jesus smiled or laughed, right? We're just not given that image of Jesus. But Luke, Luke 10.21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now we saw when Jesus says moved with compassion, it's not just a light feeling of, oh, I sort of feel bad for them. When he is weeping over the lost, he isn't just crying soft tears. He's clio. He's crying out, ugly crying. And in the same way here, when he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit, it's not just a, oh, I'm happy kind of thing. Right? It's an over-the-top expression again. It comes from two Greek words. I'm not going to tell you what they are because they wouldn't help you, and it, they're hard to pronounce. And it said that it's the word for again and the word for jump for joy. So it's like to repeatedly jump for joy. This is how Christ is exulting in the Holy Spirit. Now, we ain't charismatic here, right? But this is what it says Jesus is doing. He is exulting in the Holy Spirit to the point where it's like he's jumping for joy. This is about as happy as a person can be. It's, once again, over the top. And I think the idea is to show us that every human emotion that we have, Jesus experienced here on earth. Not just the sad and the dark emotion. And it doesn't tell us a whole lot about Jesus being happy. But here in this one place, we can see Jesus is exulting in the Holy Spirit. He's jumping for joy repeatedly. And what is he so happy about here? He's happy that the 72 have come back and they've had, you know, these wonderful experiences that the, the lame are, are healed, the blind see, and, and they've uh, preached to people. And he's saying, thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. This is what has Jesus so happy. Now, I don't know about you, that verse does not just fill me with uh, such an abundance of joy that I want to jump and jump, right? But if you think long on it, and you realize I am not wise and of great understanding, right? I am more a little child at my best, right? And I look back on my life, and I see all the decisions I've made, and I think, boy, you are a fool. I don't know how you are still alive today after all these decisions you've made. And yet, the Father has chosen not to reveal these things to college professors, to important businessmen and politicians and those sorts of people that you would think you would want to give the kingdom to if you were coming. 
chose to reveal them to people like us. People who weren't the smartest people in the world. People who don't necessarily have the greatest education. We can't talk right, can't spell right, right? And those are the sorts of people, more often than not, that God chooses to reveal himself to. The low, the lower people of the world. People like you and me, right? I'm not the wisest, you know? I'm not the richest. I'm not the smartest. I'm not even the smartest in this room, okay? <laughs> but God chose to reveal himself to me and to you. That's worth rejoicing. That is worth jumping for joy. Whatever else the world may have, all of their riches and everything, that, that all their importance and their stature in the world and in other people's eyes, I know the Father. That's worth jumping for joy. Well, I hope you've seen that Jesus, in these different emotions that he expresses, is like us. He is fully He's not some distant, unrelatable being that we can't connect with. He is fully God. He is upholding the universe by the word of his power at this very moment. And yet, he is a man who will jump for joy, who will cry to the point that snot's running down his face, who will get angry at evil. This is the God that we worship. And he's amazing. I just think the more closely we look at him, the more beautiful he becomes. The more he can stir our hearts to love him more, to serve him more, to try and be more like him. So I hope that you can see him a little bit more in this, and it would inspire that in you as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you most of all for the gift of Jesus Christ.